0: Welcome to The You Catastrophe, where we meander through politics, pop culture, church and society to consider true human ends and how life may be enchanted. My name is Joel Harrison and I am joined here, as always, by my co-host Dave Taylor. Now, uh, long-term listeners will know that we record these in a bit of a bunch, so this is just before Christmas, but I hope you are listening to this on some beach if you're in the summer- Southern Hemisphere and enjoying a summer holiday, or else you know, locked in a room like the rest of us. Maybe as of Wednesday, who knows? We'll see. Um, and if you are locked in a room, then I would recommend to you to rewatch or watch The Mandalorian.
1: <laughs> the Mandalorian.
0: Because, because we we're, we're gonna have to at some stage do an episode on can the Mandalorian redeem Star Wars? <laughs> I mean, can it?
1: I don't know. So, like, it's a really good show, and I really enjoy it. But it's, the problem is that, like we said on our uh, our episode on on Star Wars, the end, the matters. end matters. The end gives meaning. The end sort of matters. Shape. Otherwise, and what's you're the just point? D- dealing with what's little vignettes of, of yeah, that's cool. right.
0: Or or trying to or trying to do filler mm. to make things make sense when the end makes no sense and it's ridiculous. Gosh, people, I, anyway, people
1: really don't like the Last Jedi. I was looking on Twitter. Mark Hamill's been uh, amazing on Twitter lately, like just baiting uh, people. And uh, is this? And you get like all the comments are like, "Oh, I shouldn't spoil <laughs> what happens to the Mandalor."
0: You know, you know what? Like, um, it's interesting. You keep looking up things about the Last Jedi because I know you've been one of these fanboys that's supporting the recut <laughs> version. Anyway, Mandalorian is something we could do But actually, that's not what we're going to do now We thought, well, you know, the summer listening What is good for summer listening? What would be an edifying thing for you to listen to over your summer? <laughs> the the, and the so theological decided-
1: virtues of Smash Mouth <laughs> 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 of, of Sugar Ray <laughs>
0: So we decided that we are going to do an episode on doubt. Now, specifically by this, I mean the doubt a believer has in which there may be a undermining or there may be a reconsidering or a generally cataclysmic falling apart of their understanding of the world. Now, we're partly doing this because we're interested in it as a cultural matter Um Now, our episode here is not going to focus on doubt as some intellectual quandary. We're not going to be interested in it as, oh, the knockdown arguments that can um, assail the person of faith, because I don't think we're particularly interested in that. that. We don't think that's particularly fruitful, although that may happen for some. What is more interesting, I think, is thinking about the cultural bases for doubt. So this is something that Dave has been thinking about quite a bit, the cultural bases for doubt. What is it in our society that seeds doubt that precipitates doubt for a religious person. And now this is also interesting because um, Dave has set up a new practice in which he's specializing in such questions for individuals as a matter of counseling and therapy. So Dave, just give us a, um, a, you know, your like elevator pitch as to what you're doing.
1: Yeah. So I'm basically, um, I've just finished training and just got registered as a counselor. Um, And the reason I went into wanting to pursue this is I, um, I'm i someone that's kind of seen different therapists over a long period of time. I have a background in um, academically and philosophy and things like that. And I found it very hard to find people who I can talk to about the emotional impact um, of uh, my beliefs or my uncertainties. Um, yeah, and the, the weight that those those uncertainties, those doubts and you know, grappling with doctrinal matters uh, actually has. And so I'm wanting to basically create a practice where I can kind of create a space where I can at least help to elucidate what the issues of concern are and what what it feels like to be often in a state of real anxiety about a possible loss of meaning um, in life. So I'm not particularly interested or able to you know answer questions um, but i'm hoping to kind of create a space where at least i can help you clear out the intellectual furniture enough to have some room to move so to speak
0: so so what kind what so just what kind of person like what you, this is so dave's offering is a matter of counseling to uh, persons individuals and so on so if you were interested in seeking assistance on what
1: yeah so um for like there's any number of reasons people might go to counselling and I see people for all sorts of reasons. So, you know, grief, substance abuse stuff, um, you know, um, anxiety, all that kind of things like that. But the the real um, kind of area of specialisation would be, you know, if you come from a to- toxic church um, background that has really messed you up, I'm very interested in talking to you about that. If you've ever had to work with a toxic um, church leader um, and, and want someone that understands, you know, the unique um, challenges that that poses for people; those are the kind of issues that, that I'm I'm interested in exploring. And I'm also really passionate about kind of providing a space where, if you come with, you know, there's this idea that I have about the universe that you know perhaps my identity is an illusion. That's a that's a issue that I really struggled with as a young man. You know, that I wouldn't that 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 belief about the universe wouldn't be treated as a symptom of an underlying pathology, but would actually be taken seriously on its own terms. Um, and that's something that I really struggled with trying to find a, a person to talk to um, who, who understood that ideas can just be ideas. They don't necessarily need to be symptoms of a pathology. <laughs> uh-huh.
0: Or or, or or deeply yeah. held, right? So, you know, so you know, people who have experienced toxic church and so on may still, nevertheless, want to work through what it means to be a yeah, Christian right. and so on, right? Yeah. It's not, and it, it it's not, you know, necessarily that they're um, that that's taken as well. That's actually the yeah. problem, you know, or something like that. It's takes seriously what they genuinely yeah. believe and hold yeah. as well. Um, so this is called Dave's practice is called Theoria. It's great um, for contemplation. Greek for contemplation, and it's at the- theoria.com.au. We'll post it again on our um, on our Facebook page and so on so that you can get in touch with Dave or, or connect him uh, to people who you think would benefit from um, his practice um, now. So we did the episode on narcissism, and now we're going to discuss doubt. <laughs> so this is another we've done, delving we've into done loneliness as yeah, well. Th-
1: so we've got my my full range. <laughs> I know
0: this is like the this is like yeah. This I was going to say it's like the seven deadly sins, but it's not. It's actually taking a uh, taking a march through your mm. brain or something, isn't it? So anyway, so what, um, Dave? Tell me about doubt, sort of in your
1: context. Yeah, so. Um, yeah, as you said, like I'm. So I, I I don't dismiss it. Dismiss people when they attempt to provide answers to difficult questions that lead people to doubt. But I think maybe ten years ago now there was a real emphasis within um, churches on that practice, and I think it was something around trying to respond to the new atheists and and things like that. Who you know, gosh, that <laughs> they're barely relevant these days, which is, you know. What, which everyone saw coming, I guess. Um, I think, you know, if you're into that, that's cool. And I think there's some people that need that and things like that. I'm particularly interested in the social conditions that make, the social and cultural conditions that make belief not the default option. Um, and so I, I guess what I'm talking about is the sociology of doubt. Um, so why, why do we, um, why does faith need to, why is the burden of proof on uh, on faith uh, in our culture in a way that it wasn't in the past? And some might say um, that there's some really clear answers to that. So the, the success of the scientific method um, might be one that, you know, uh, we constructed this new approach to knowledge. It was really successful in both describing the world and helping us to control our environment. So, we then deprioritise any forms of knowledge that weren't in line with that. So that's one answer that's often given. And so, and then we once once the uh, doctrines of the church were put um, under those um, epistemological demands, they couldn't stand up. So that could be one 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 thing that's always pointed to is, you know, the the sexual revolution and the undermining of traditional kind of Christian uh, morality. Um, so the church became basically irrelevant because um, it was kind of not um, not uh, uh, following the eschatological pattern of the sexual revolution, uh, if, if one way to talk, it, uh, talk about it. Um, and then there's also kind of, I guess, and I mean Charles Tyler talks about each of these ones these things as well. Uh, one, another one would be just people are more exposed to the diversity of worldviews on offer, right? So, and we, there's this real sense of the arbitrariness of belief. Um, that, you know, if I was born in another time in another location, I wouldn't believe the things that I believe now. And the only reason I believe uh, in the things that I believe uh, that I do is because of the arbitrary conditions of my birth um, and things like that. So those are the, the things that are often pointed to. But I guess I want to go much deeper than that. I want to think about how, um, how are there kind of co- cultural forces at play um, that shape both Our thinking, our approach to knowledge Our feelings, our approach to kind of Emotions and particularly aesthetics Um, And then I also want to think about The problem of church culture As it presents itself today And I think for me, and this is kind of Slightly personal In that these are the sources of doubt for myself um, But I think I've heard Enough people saying the same thing That they must be kind of somewhat Universal, but when I say doubt I don't simply mean
0: well that's what yeah. I was just going to ask. So I think I think we just break down doubt just before we go to those just for a minute. Just break it down a bit because I I think what we're not m- talking about here is say reconstituting faith in the sense that like you know I was a pentecostal and now I'm now I'm something else yeah. right and I had to go through quite you know, a process that was quite, um, in some ways, difficult, yeah. right? Uh, in which you feel like you're being remade yeah. in some ways and you have to go through a process where, you know, you're, you're actually quite angry yeah. as well and, and and then also enlivened by the new possibilities and these sorts of things. But that seems to be um, a bit different, right? We're not talking about that, nor are we talking about, like, uh, when you have a sort of movement in that sort of ex- evangelical mm. way to simply, as we talked about with our episode on brittle fundamentalism, that you become almost like hyper-evangelicalist, evangelicalist, <laughs> evangelical in, um, you know, sort of liberal tendencies. Mm. I think what what, what your Getting it here is not something like uncertainty of explanation or a changing in, in the nature of what you're practice and believe, but more actually something root and branch, like a sense that it might all be bullshit, yeah. for yes, example, something right. like that. That is that could be truly
1: cataclysmic yeah, for yeah, you. Yeah, and, and it, um, yeah, and that all that that kind of paralysis that comes when you kind of realize that kind of existentially. Um, the tradition that you're inhabiting is is of no no meaning to you or is not a source of meaning for you anymore. Um, doubt, I think, is much more than simply having a logical problem that you're yet to find a solution to. It's this kind of deep um, yeah, existential problem. and and that that's precisely what I was talking about when I said that there's often a lot of difficulty for people who are really being burdened by that that sense of kind of dread. <laughs> that perhaps their sources of meaning um, have bottomed, bottomed out on them. It can be very hard to find, especially mental health practitioners, that can understand even the language that you're using when you're uh, describing that phenomenon. So, for example, I, I was, I've was i been talking to a therapist recently. I, I just finished up um, with a psychologist who was really, really excellent and fantastic and, and I would thoroughly recommend uh, them. But towards the end of our time together, we kind of got to this point where I was kind of relaying some kind of quite difficult, challenging things about my own childhood, um, which I've kind of alluded to. I didn't have the easiest um, uh, childhood for a number of reasons. And, you know, she was saying, well, you know, you found religion as a, as a teenager. Was that a source of strength or solace to you? Um, and I said, well, you know, it's actually diff- deeply ambiguous. I, I, I became a Christian in a um, highly reformed setting. And I was a deeply troubled young person who had had some very negative, painful experiences. And I was presented, you know, with this doctrine that on my own merit, I'm worthy of eternal damnation and nothing that I ever do will ever be good enough. And it's a a sheer act of mercy on God's part that he would have anything to do with me. And it's only by hiding behind Christ that God would find me lovable. Now, that's one way of framing it, and that's the way that I was inclined inclined to receive it um, uh, most of the time. But on the other hand, there's this other sense that, well, nothing that I can do can separate me from God's love. That I'm, um, I I have the infinite mercy of God available to me. I'm kind of con- I can be forgiven of anything I do. That's the flip side of it, and I actually I kind of would flip between. <laughs> those two sets of things and uh, a lot of that depended, depended on my particular disposition and the way in which people receive reformed doctrines um, or, or you know different types of Christian doctrines will often depend on their bio, own biography um, and a whole range of different things and she was really confused about how why I would hold on to those beliefs like like I did and she said something like well, Why didn't you just choose to believe in a different type of God? Why didn't you choose, like, if you're going to believe in a God, why don't you believe in a more kind, unconditionally loving God? And at which, at which point I kind of went, mm, I probably just need to stop talking about religion at this point because this person clearly <laughs> doesn't understand
0: what religion it was just a voluntarist yeah, act. What religion you could just switch between them and was. so on. Yeah. And then
1: on the other side of things, if when, when I and then I would say, you know, but this and I said, you know, there would be times where I believe greatly in these things and believe in God incredibly deep, profoundly, and other times where I had no certainty at all and I really feared that there was no God. And then I tried to explain, you know, um, that um, what that meant for me was my entire life had no meaning and perhaps even that I didn't exist, right? If there was no external observer who could see me and recognize me um, from outside of myself, then all that exists of me is momentary psychological states, which doesn't constitute what I would consider an identity. And this was a real philosophical problem for me that filled me with dread. <laughs> um, and it was turned out to me not, e- not existing um, in any real sense, right? So that that's a philosophical problem that I, I developed as a teenager. And so the, yeah, the, op- and, and, the option and, and, but was either God exists and I exist, or there is no God and what I think of as my identity is an illusion. And- <laughs> right so this is sort of
0: and you can narrate it with your biography yeah. right like you can you can actually draw it out but so let's 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 move to these 3 points I mean I just I just want to say to that like I I don't have anything I don't think I have reached those heights of Mm. doubt my my thing I think we'll get to later is where I get just a general sense of why bother (laughs) sure (laughs) why bother with this but so let's 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 turn to um ethical individualism so we've got here as these sort of social cultural sources of doubt um ethical individual no sorry epistemic individualism you say hyperstimulation of the loss of sublime and then what we're calling here clerical <laughs> so, e- e- epistemic individualism. Yeah.
1: So those are the the three sources of doubt that I'm I'm going to go through, but um, epistemic individualism. So, as you will know from if you've listened to me at all before, I'm, is I'm a big fan of Hannah Arendt, and one, she's been a big influence on my epistemology. In particular, her argument about the way in which human beings put. Uh, well, don't put reality together, but learn to trust in the reality of their experience through the fact that it's being shared in common with others. So we develop a common sense in the world and we develop a um, a, a, a trust in the reality of our our lived experience because it's being shared in common. And the more an individual is isolated and cut off from others, the less they come to trust their own experience. And she thinks that this is why loneliness can be a source or a root into ideology, that ideology is is a substitute for this real shared sense of, of reality, right? And I think that in some sense that is our natural state. That's our natural epistemological state and that's how we're kind of hardwired to... Um, put the world together, but two big uh, developments happened in European civilization that challenged this uh, in different ways. And I'm probably overstating my case somewhat, and there will be counterexamples available. But nonetheless, I think it works. What? <laughs> this whole podcast is about overstating the case. <laughs> but so, the, and one of them, the, which will be uh, come as no surprise, is the Reformation. So there, the Reformation put a renewed emphasis um, on. The need for individual conversion and a development of an individual relationship to God, um, which kind of came to full fruition um, in movements like the Puritan movements or the Anabaptists um, and, and things like that, where even in the Puritan uh, situation young men were kind of sent off into the wilderness until they went and found God. And then they came back and they could be kind of truly accepted into the community because they had established that individual relationship to God or to the truth um, or, um, um, uh, yeah, to the faith, Um, which, you know, was um, distinguished, like could be distinguished from a earlier approach to our relationship to God where, we understood that our relationship to God was always mediated. It was always mediated through um, the saints, um, that is through the people that have come before us and is held by the church in community. And of course, there was sins on the other side as well. Um, but nonetheless, this change took place in the way that we approach knowledge. And this had a a, a kind of secular equivalent in the Enlightenment, um, the European Enlightenment of the 17th uh, century. Uh, where uh, this kind of new approach to knowledge, um, which wasn't completely novel, but nonetheless this new kind of intellectual push towards constructing the world um, conceptually from first principles um, in our armchairs became um, the kind of form of our approach to knowledge that became valorized. So these two forms, uh, these two kind of cultural uh touchstones, uh, show a kind of diversion from a communal approach to knowledge, um, and relationship to God to an individualized one, where the assumption is whatever cannot be established, uh, by the individual cannot be, cannot be trusted. And as an aside, I'd say, you know, um, it's, it's interesting that today, um, we kind of understand that science science is a communal activity, right? It requires a a global community of scientists repeating experiments around the world. But this this kind of uh, this strange um, this strange turn that has taken place in our culture of things like the flat Earth movement actually demonstrate this hyper enlightenment. It's not a return to dark age thinking, as people always say, um, mm. when because people don't understand the history of science. <laughs> Flat Earthers are not a return to the Dark Age. They're actually a high. They are like a a a, a super um, example uh, of of the Enlightenment approach to knowledge. In that, unless that person can, in based on their individual experience, be can uh, be convinced in, to such an extent that logically entertaining the opposite of their thesis is impossible, um, then it can't be true. And so that's that's where. Right. this – Right, so, so
0: let me let me let me press this forward because we're, we're taking up, um, or well, we could just keep going forever, I guess, but um, the so. This poses a burden, yes, right, on the individual, yes. and that it's on you yep. whether you believe something or not, um, whether you come to the right conclusions or not, um, and even through then to more charismatic expressions, uh, as I've said before, where the uh, emphasis is on do I really love yep. Jesus and this sort of stuff, right? And 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 then this is in the absence of and an often a repudiation of more cultural yep. forms, right? So, um, in our both our religious contexts, we're grew up with, an understanding that public liturgy and iconography and so on, liturgical, um, sacramental life is actually a a burden or it's a stumbling yeah. block or it's a problem to what is the real emphasis upon the individual decision or the individual will and so on. And so, you know, you, you have this understanding that we evacuate the social conditions mm. of belief, yeah. right? And then it becomes a case of, well doubt becomes a socially conditioned possibility yeah, that's right. right
1: and and so if you look at it if you think about the ecclesial response to the social conditions so in the past the way in which belief has been reinforced that sense of common common belief by the by the church has been through um, set public liturgy uh, where everyone says the same thing um, they share the same creeds. They have iconography. Their their story is embedded in the materials that are surrounding them, so statutory windows, uh, things like that. That that sense of – that common sense of reality, the, the, the common sense of orthodoxy is embedded in in space. Um,
0: uh, and a sense that I don't have to – it's not a burden entirely on me because I can be carried yeah. by others. So I don't – you know, I, I recently was in a context where I had to engage in – uh, a form of extemporaneous prayer that I have mm. not done very <laughs> recently. And I was always tempted to pull out and start looking at the Book of Common Prayer and yeah. reading it out there because it's kind of like, you know, the the ability to actually rely on ancestral ties yeah. is actually yeah. quite important. Now, I want to move, so that's one, but I want to move quickly on to hyperstimulation, the loss of sublime. Now, bearing in mind, David, that we're supposed to be a half hour podcast. So we've talked about one of our three <laughs>
1: things and it's 25 minutes. Um, sure. And this follows on, from a similar point right so um, we won't go we'll go longer yes. than half now that's um, okay let's keep going but um, uh, it's actually the state and the market that have taken over um, those public um, that those public liturgies um, and public iconographies right so the state is able to reinforce its message the market can re- reinforce its message through shaping the time and space of of people as they experience it, um, but the church um, has uh, has become diminished in its capacity to do this. And not only has it become diminished, but it's actually retreated and sought to emulate um, the the aesthetics um, of the market um, to make itself relevant. But in doing so, it's actually I would suggest um, robbed itself of relevancy um, for the sake of, of of pragmatics or expediency, which in I th- which I think in the long run is going to shoot itself in the it's going to be uh, exercise in shooting itself in the foot. So the next the next point that I was I, that as as Joel has said, um, I think one of the sources of doubt. It's not just the the overburdening of the individual to put the world and knowledge together uh, themselves, but it's also hyperstimulation and what I'm calling the loss of the sense of the sublime. Um, So if you think about the way in which um, human beings' uh, access to aesthetic objects has changed in the last, what, 500 years, maybe 100, 200 years even, um, we have access to aesthetic objects to an extent that would have been mind-boggling um, to an ancient person or a medieval person, I can go on my phone right now and just with uh, put, by putting a few words in uh, into Google, I can see a digital reproduction of every great artwork, almost every great artwork that has ever been constructed. These are things that that say the medieval peasant never in their whole life would have seen. And perhaps would have you know one or two things within their parish church um, that would that would evoke that sense um, that the artworks were uh, uh, kind of designed to 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 evoke. Now this has huge implications psychologically and um, uh, and 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 in in to do with our kind of affections, um, our aesthetic sense. This this has a huge huge impact. So we're constantly bombarded by images, um, sounds, narratives, stories, like on a minute-by-minute basis. Um, our life is full of words, um, images, and sounds, and that this has a a real consequence for us, and that consequence is is simply boredom, right? So if we imagine ourselves in the position of a medieval peasant, um, a Roman slave, for example, um, one of the things if we we would
0: as we often do.
1: <laughs> um, one of the things that we would find really difficult is to think about is what what did they do at their time? What did they do to entertain themselves? We can't comprehend the life without the constant distraction that we currently experience. Um, and one of the other outworkings of this is that we, uh, because of this kind of universal access to aesthetic objects art has now moved away from something that is tailored towards the interests of the elite who themselves are trained um, to at least talk as though they understand the deeper things of life um, through introductions to lessons in rhetoric and things like that and and philosophical aesthetics. It's instead become democratised, right? It's it's there to appeal to the most amount of people um, as uh, immediately and almost automatically as possible. And this has kind of lowered the baseline of our aesthetic engagement um, and that has placed a demand in our hearts and souls and minds for perpetual novelty. And the consequence for this is religious. There is a religious consequence to this, because the sense of the sublime, that is, our interaction with an aesthetic object or experience that shifts our gaze from our immediate sense experience to matters of eternity uh, or of eternal consequence. That is one of the ways in which God draws us to himself and it has been since people have had the notion of God. People have uh, been drawn to, to the divine through this sense of the sublime but in a state of hyperstimulation and, and under the demands of perpetual novelty, that sense um, has been deadened.
0: So Graham Ward talks about this a bit in his book um, *True Religion* as well, and he 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 sees a fulcrum around someone like Paul Tillich, mm. right? And he he points to Rothko paintings, where Rothko paintings have just these dark abysses, and he sees this as kind of like an exemplification of Paul Tillich's notion of the ultimate, mm. where there's a kind of empty signifier for what yeah. is God, right? And you can plug into that whatever you want, and he says that precipitates this notion, artistically, culturally, aesthetically, and so on, that maybe. Um, it's just a byword for mm. nothing, um, and in order to um, not face up to that nothingness, what we do instead is we paper it over with kitsch, yeah, that's right. right? And we and we and we have this endless um, entertainment that you're talking about, and so on. Um, and and so he says, you know, then you precipitate a new crisis because the kitsch and so on gives a sense of, well, if this is the ultimate, then is everything equally mm. arbitrary, equally meaningless, equally possible? But equally meaningless, yeah. Yeah. right?
1: And that said, like I'm, I'm not, I'm not particularly conservative when it comes to aesthetics and all um, the arts. And I actually think contemplating um, and meditating on meaninglessness and nothingness can be a source of elevation towards God um, in 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 the negative, um, in a way, right? So I'm, I'm not saying that we need to return to a particular age's aesthetic or something like that. Um, what I what I'm kind of saying, suggesting, is one of the cultural sources of doubt for us is that we we um, ha, 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 are so over aroused that nothing can stimulate us. Um, so
0: can I just? Can, I think we should move on to the third part as well. But can I just point here to uh, put us in a concrete context for me? So um, I I think I've said this to you before as well that. Um, I, I've lived in five cities in four mm. countries and Sydney is the hardest city to be a mm. Christian. Um, I you know I've lived in um, the UK and I've lived in the US and I've lived in Australia and New Zealand and Sydney is the hardest city and I always wonder why that is and I think it's for the reasons in part you're articulating right What sustains a Christian life? Um, it is these things you've been pointing to actually, Creating a culture where it becomes intelligible through rhythms of life, liturgy, yeah. aesthetics, and these things, right? And yet, those are the things that, in this neck of the woods, are seen as the stum- really seen as stumbling blocks and often idolatrous, or 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 at very least irrelevant. I remember the first time going to a friend's baptism uh, for their mm. baby in this neck of the woods, and the minister coming out and and de- and uh, proclaiming that there's nothing magical about this water. I just got it from the mm. kitchen tap, and all this. And I'm thinking, what's the point? Like, yeah. what? You know, why would you even articulate that and in this context where it's supposed to be this public celebration of welcoming this person to the body of mm. Christ, you know, and you and you decide this is a time to uh, extrapolate, extrapolate on your materialist yeah. metaphysics. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, it's just unbe- unbelievable. Um, anyway, so that I, I, and then... I, wanted, and then
1: I, I know that we're going to go on a bit long, but I think it's worth kind of just sitting on this a tiny bit longer. Uh, sorry. One, one, one of the reasons I got on to thinking about this particular point in preparation for this podcast was I was doing a yoga lesson the other day. <laughs> uh, one of my – a friend of Sarah and I's is a –
0: You've changed, <laughs> man. You've changed.
1: Uh, Sarah and I um, have a friend that is a, is a yoga. He, he,
0: he, he is telling me about his yoga while he drinks his, like, non-alcoholic, non-fat <laughs> beer.
1: Um, just, just, yeah. um, just.
0: And he got a tattoo the other day, people. <laughs>
1: We haven't even talked about
0: that. How have we not talked about that?
1: It's it's to evoke a sense Good of the sublime. Good lord! Um, it's what? It's to evoke a sense of the sublime.
0: Oh, anyway, whatever. You're just becoming that hip youth. So my,
1: our friend is a yoga instructor and does is a, runs a Christian retreat and and stuff. And I had been reading. I've been doing a lot of um, kind of work on trauma um, recently and in preparation for my practice. And you know, there's a lot of evidence based around yoga and I thought I should probably experience it myself. Um, And one of the things that our friend asked was for us to bring to mind our sense of hunger for God. And she's, you know, and then was saying, you know, if if you have no hunger for God, that you should kind of think about what you are hungry for. And I realized at that point, I was like, I don't have any hunger for God or the divine or anything like that. And it was probably the particular state that I was in, um, But that made me think, okay, well, what do I want? Like what what do I hunger after and when have I felt as if any of this God stuff matters? And I realised there's probably two experiences that I can think of. One of them uh, was when I saw The Tree of Life for the first time at the cinemas and I had this this real um, transcendent experience that I imagine is what most normal people feel when they go and engage in charismatic worship or, or whatever. Um, and the other time was listening to uh, – I went to a performance of the sacred music of Avo Pert at the um, Sydney Opera House. and I then I, And I realised that, oh, actually, if I want to take care of – if I actually want to cultivate a spirituality, I probably need to seek these kinds of subliminal – Experiences
0: and 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 also uh, because I'm certainly know, you, not getting
1: it from churches in Sydney. <laughs> you can't just you
0: can't just read rege- you can't just generate no. it right. It's and not it takes like you're, word, the desire right? the desire is not always yeah. there, and then you encounter something and you think, oh, there should be the desire, right? So it can actually deaden the actual desire itself. Like I'm the same. Like I, what do I look and think? What has been? What what have I seen as those exultant periods mm. or you know, those periods of where seeking God deeply? And I think you know. Um, the height of it would be triduum in the high Anglican um, church yeah. service. Um, but also, you know, more recently, probably the baptism of our daughter, mm. right? Where, you know, we're dealing with a really shitty 2020 mm. and we get to baptize our daughter. That's pretty amazing. And that was wonderful to do. But it's those high points, you know, that you'd need. And, and I think in Sydney it's amazing because we, it's often described as, you know, this this sparkling hedonistic, hedonistic Mm. culture, right. in which the entire city is oriented towards forms of hedonism, right. in in terms of like, um, you know, who gets the waterfront views, who gets the, um, you know, to spend their time on the boat and all this sort of stuff. Anyway, um, Kate did a great lecture once on, um, on, um, beauty and justice in, in the Sydney context, right. Where she discusses this sort of thing. But, um, But, you know, and at the same time, what do we then offer in response to it? A bunch of propositional... That's statements, right. right? In which then we think our job is to defend that, as yeah. opposed to cultivating this. So Sydney is easily, and I and I contrast that with I lived in New York City, right? And you think like a friend described it to me when I when I sent a message. She's a, a New Yorker, and I said a message saying, "Where do I find theology books in New York?" She said, "Oh, Joel, has no one told you you're in Babylon now? Because there's nowhere to buy them, right? It was just like it was just the, at the like you know major bookstores and so on. And but at the same time, people knowing they're in this interesting melting pot sort of context, they would cultivate these spaces in which even in Times Square, you could duck off to the side at what's called Smoky Mary's. It's called Smoky Mary's because it's constantly shrouded in incense, yep. right? But it was it was just a serene beauty mm. of a place. Not so in mm. this context, right? Structurally set up to encourage doubt in some ways, right? That's what it seems yeah. to me. Anyway, let's go to number yeah. three. We're we're gonna. We're, look, this is just. We're taking this one <laughs> home. We're we're just we're just doing this until we finish. What what's number so three? So the,
1: the third and final one. So I, and I, I I I I fear is slightly um, esoteric and particular to me. But again, I've heard reports of this from other people. My third source of doubt is uh, clerical dickheadery. <laughs> Uh, is what I'm uh, calling it. So the context of this is basically my social media account. Or <laughs> um, all, all of them. Well, so no, that, 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 that just to pause on that, this does point
0: out that yes, it is probably peculiar to us in certain ways, right? Because we are engaged in public conversations or something like that. And so, but, but then you think, well, um, we put ourselves out there and say things, mm. right? So maybe it particularly yeah. um, has an impact, uh, particularly praise on our minds. But then everybody's now a public commentator yeah. and everybody's now engaged in this. So it, I, I think it could be, you know, wider yeah. than assumed yeah. as well.
1: That said, though, I've been talking to people who are trying to put together, re, put together what it means to be a a Christian after a period of crisis for many, many years. I'm currently running online discussion groups about that with different people. And this is one that comes up all the time, actually. Um, I don't know if people examine it um, as, as kind of perhaps too philosophically or sociologically as I will do now, but still it, it's that... Yeah, certainty. go. Break
0: it, break it down. Break so, it down.
1: Break it down. So I'm thinking in terms of kind of the, the seeming overabundance of overt ego-stroking, narcissistic bullying and gaslighting, dog-whistling and a general sense of a lack of love that seems to present itself on the comment sections of social media posts and then which is a reflection of um, real-world interactions as well that people have had with members of the clergy um, or people within leadership positions within the church and I hope that this isn't just me complaining here, I I think that this this is pointing to a genuine problem that exists within the church. Um, And I think the reason why this is a problem in terms of doubt um, or a loss of spiritual existential meaning is that, at least for me, I live with this underlying hope that the people that we, through our labour, are free up to engage in a life of contemplation of scripture um, prayer care for the vulnerable and the poor um, and the administ- administration of the sacraments and preaching and teaching one would expect that the people that we free up to be able to do that through our labor um, <laughs> through through paying paying their their living would demonstrate some sort of transformed, existence that demonstrates that the spiritual life, that the Christian life is possible somewhere. And yet when you see people who are so obviously simply when they talk about God actually just talking about some some, uh, kind of uh, encrypted (laughs) signifier for their own ego (laughs) – uh, this actually fills me with despair. It makes me actually think that perhaps by buying into this whole Christianity thing, I'm actually just have been participating in a clerical class's psychodrama. <laughs> um, uh, and a similar thing happens, right? So, and 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 part of this is dispositional for myself. I'm someone that is slightly prone to hero worship and wanting wanting to find exemplars somewhere out there, and so. When I found out about Jean Vanier, for example, who was an absolute hero of mine and I thought this is someone who through devotion to Christ and the and and people less fortunate than himself has managed to empty himself of all but love in this kind of canonic way and it turns out that he was coercing people who had devoted their virginity to Christ into sexual relationships with him. This was utterly devastating for me because – it turns out that the Christian life might not actually be be possible, <laughs> um, and so this is a real epistemological crisis for me. So I'm not saying I'm not just saying so, this is distasteful that there are people like this within the church. It actually causes a rupture um, in my sense of reality um, of the Christian faith.
0: So I think I, I think I'm, I might be slightly different in that simply because I grew up with mm-hmm. clergy, right? Like, so I'm a, I'm the son of a minister. Um, and so I remember once somebody entering into the priesthood and then, uh, and then like, uh, not, he didn't bail on it, but he, he, he sort of took a break and he said, um, you know, you realize that there's no holy of mm. holies, you know, you think you're going to go there and discover there's holiness and so, and so on. And I remember being perplexed by that comment cause I thought, well, of course not, you know, but then I think that's because I saw all the psychodramas, right? Like I grew up with psychodramas and <laughs> yeah. the, and the, and the difference I guess would be is that, um, the people within it don't recognize this is what they're yeah. doing. Often, yeah. right? So that's that's gonna be but, the disappointing thing, and, and and as well. And I and I don't. I, t- I think you're totally right. I mean, I think there are, and I think you agree, mm-hmm. obviously, that there are amazing. Yes, that's right. Clergy. So, like, I have had, um, had at certain points amazing yeah, clergy, and I was. Fu- um, I was fostered
1: by a Presbyterian minister as a teenager. Uh, he took me when I was, and usually was 15, it's and he like was, he was an and, exemplar of the Christian faith, um, and and and, and, and in your well.
0: context, it's someone who, who was who was. Doing the you know parish role, yeah. right? It was the person who was praying uh, who people. and this is the why sick, you don't see praying the, for you people. don't see the
1: saintly people, right? Because they do this, right, um, right, right, They, they, right. they yeah. quietly take te- really really troubled teenagers into their home.
0: Look, <laughs> you know, I mean, Kate and I really appreciate that our our rector is uh, is very much a parish yeah. priest, right? Um, so I, I, but I think I I think this is for me. I'm not sure it gets to the point of. Um, I, I don't know. You, you're the you're the one with the the training to diagnose me on these no, things. No. So so <laughs> what what no? But I mean, like I I don't know if it's for me. It's a sense of you know existential crisis for the thing itself. But maybe it's a different kind of existential crisis because for me it precipitates a sense of why bother? Yeah. You know why should I care about this at all? Right? Uh, for me, this is what you're identifying here. This clerical dickheadery is the thing that really brings me down. It really brings me down, right? I can handle hyperstimulation. Because if we create context outside mm. of that, then it's okay, right? But it's mis- it's this miserable and sort of like willful leaning in to the horrors of contemporary social media and public discourse that fits with a kind of Puritan sensibility, especially in these Nick of the Woods. And it leaves me utterly mm. spent. Like it just leaves me, I mean, I I, I, I spend too much mental energy mm. on it and it just leaves me feeling why bother, right? So. I just want to take the, the, the Puritan Richard Hooker on this for a moment, right? So, Richard Hooker, 16th century um, Anglican divine, he has this book, Laws of Ecclesiastical Government, and he, and he says, you know, he, he's really attacking the Puritans. And basically, what he says is the Puritans carve out the godly and the ungodly, right? And then they use any tools available to man their own ramparts. And when criticism is raised of them, um, they, he says they turn immediately to their internal ranks, immediately to their internal ranks, and then they engage in this huge performance in which he says, lest their zeal uh, be unwitnessed, right? He, he says they become entirely performative and they turn, um, you know, internal ranks is and they, they basically, it's like somebody criticizes um, one of them, and then there's like an email chain goes out in which then somebody has to provide the response, mm. right? And invariably in the Australian context, it seems that response is apparently in The Spectator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, just, it's just bizarre, right? And, the, and it's bizarre because The Spectator in overseas context is an interesting magazine. Here in Australia, it's like the rabble-rousing mm. right. Right. You know, it's like actually just a craze ball paper. And then they and then they publish in this. Why? Because you're actually only talking to an internal class who you're trying to justify yourselves to each other, mm. right? And so that just leaves me thinking, you know, all it, all discourse is, is seen as like public Christian discourse, no matter what the venue is, no matter how good it is, no matter how low level it is. And you think, well, if I'm going to try and write thought-provoking mm. essays, if I'm going to try and, un, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, develop and 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 discuss the very grammar with which we consider issues and so on, and yet this is the sort of mm. thing that is held up as you know great public work. Why bother? <laughs> you know, like what's the point? You know, and this this brings out to me, you know, it brings out in me really terrible yeah. things. So it's you know you're talking about how it brings out for you, you know, the sense of like maybe there is no holiness. Mm. For me, it brings out a sense of like. Um apathy, mm. why bother? And it also brings up a hyper competitive sense of like, how can I destroy mm. this, right? How can my ego be inflated in the context of these other people who are clearly inflating mm. their own, right? And then a sense of despair, right? So it's just it's just I I actually think that this, I I think like I, I'm I'm really increasingly of the view that as a matter of Christian duty, we should all just stop Facebook. Yeah, prob- like I just right. think. <laughs> You know, I think, like, it's just actually, why do we do it? Like, you, you, you what well, you are articulating there about these ministers who basically go online... And they have this incredibly uh, closed discourse in which they do this Puritan signaling to each other, and often that Puritan signaling is done against the veneer of civility. Mm. So they claim that they're trying to promote civil discourse, but actually that's just the veneer of being the most censorious people you've ever met, right? Because they'll claim you're not being civil and so on, and oh, but you know, when actually that's just being Puritan, Puritanically censorious, Mm. right? So I, I mean, Francis. I'm um, getting um, uh, worked up but Francis with <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah uh, sorry Pope Francis with um and Fratelli Tutti he's like big on getting off this digital yeah, life, yeah. right? So, he calls it campaigns of mutual <laughs> hatred, or he yeah. says that it's people people associate simply for a common enemy, and he says that essentially it creates local narcissism, and how can we not describe the church online in mm. those ways? Local narcissism, right? And he says, you know, this is against, you know, this idea that then it becomes performance to each other, right? It's against what he says, true wisdom demands encounter with mm. reality, And, you know, there's a a great, again, go back to Hooker, there's this great passage where he says, you know, if you show these people their inability to judge such matters, as in you tell them you don't know what you're talking about, their answer is, God hath chosen the simple. That is like a direct quote. This is what Hooker says. And then he goes, and then he keeps going, going, right? He keeps going. He keeps going, convince them of folly, and that's so plainly that even very children upbraid mm. them with it. They have the bucklers of like defense. Christ's own apostle was accounted mad. The best men evermore by the mm. sentence of the world have been judged to be right out of their minds. So everything becomes self-confirming for this close circle. And it's just, just get off. Like, I mean, we just have to, we just have to like go, no, because actually I think you're both, you're both, you're both, um, you're both trying you're both creating this sort of space in which all discourse is flattened and so you're not concerned for truth really you're concerned for ego and you're actually probably doing harm to your position and those around you. You're actually probably in this kind of you go on there and you see these people doing and the way they are discussing and and actually obsessed Mm. with it, right? Obsessed with it. And you think what are you doing with your time? <laughs> <laughs> like, that, that's just another th- Anyway, so this gets me real, so I'm at the point now where I'm thinking, we have the Yucatashiri page, that's good, we interact with people there, fine, it's pleasant, but like, I need to get yeah. off this because it's I actually it, well. it keeps precipitating a sense from me of what's the yeah. point you know like I can't see how this marries up to the supposed community and the supposed um you know pursuit and quest and the supposed um you know um uh living the life of the incarnated yeah. god that we purport to lead right I do not see how mm. this fits with it and so it just and and so I think you're right like there's this idea of you You can't, you know, I, I should be able to look to these people to to um my clergy and go, like, you know this is exemplary. Yeah, that's right. and and I
1: you know? you know, and this is why I'm hesitant when you when you kind of when you were saying before like that there is no holies of holy holy of holies. I, I don't think I'm satisfied with that. I don't think I'm uh,
0: Oh no, no I'm no, not satisfied. I think I'm just I think I'm just I think
1: I'm just inured yeah. to it. Like I think I'm just kinda like, oh, this has yeah, been the state of my need, life for all I time. I need to believe that there are saints out there. Um Yeah, I I need to believe that in the in the same sense that I need ecclesial architecture as well and a, ecclesial art. I need I need some 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 instantiation um, of Christian truth uh, or, sub- or narrative legitimation yeah, yeah, that's like right. narrative that's legitimation a, a beautiful way of putting it um, and th- I know the response to this these comments is going to be well everyone's a sinner um, kind of thing um, or that we shouldn't put clergy on a pedestal and that's true to a certain extent but at the same time
0: it's not the gospel. <laughs>
1: But at the but at the no, same time, no, I mean, like Christ to...
0: Christ doesn't says as much, right? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, right? Like Christ tells you that the the incarnation is to say that you can yeah, be good. And I,
1: yeah, that's right. But but also it's 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 the fact that these are the people that we have set apart to be exemplary in a certain way, and when that that fails, I do, I don't think I'm being unreasonable to say, well, this causes a real problem um, for my ability to. Um, grasp the truth. Um, um, anyway, we've gone on way too long. I'd probably like to return actually to this topic of fallen heroes and, and things like that in the future. Because I think there's there's a lot of Look, I to discuss obviously
0: there. I obviously got I obviously get very worked up, especially at the end there. And and then maybe that indicates that I should be going online to theoria.com.au. But you know, anyway, let's finish there, right? This is obviously um, hugely um, important stuff that can actually uh, draw up a lot of sort of deep, um, you know uh, let's just call it scarring mm. for people it's or, or deep emotional issues that they need to actually mm. unpack. But anyway, so this is I think it's great that Dave is actually you know identified that these are things that um, are not just simply him, it's not just a simply an excursion into Dave's brain, but actually these are things that affect, I think a lot of people in the church and a lot of people in various contexts. Right. So, you know, if you are interested again, you should go check out the practice. And I, I take Dave's people practice. from all over
1: the world as well, as long as you can do it within yeah, right. my work hours. Uh, I'm yeah, online based.
0: So, so Online based as well. So, um, but let's we're gonna we're gonna finish. So this is us for um, the summer. You've you've been enjoying our summer season. <laughs>
1: This is it's like mum and, and dad gonna, yelling at each other in the car on a hot <laughs>
0: yeah yeah on the way to your holiday. Um, so we are we are stopping and we're going to have a uh, well we're we're going to have an actual break as and we're on holiday rather than doing the things like setting up a business and finishing mm. a book and so on. So we're going to actually have a holiday and um, then we're going to come back in 2021. And I think there's a whole bunch of stuff we want to maybe think about exploring in 2021. I want to get Dave to talk about um, boredom. Mm as you just mentioned in this episode, I wanted to t- get him to uh, reflect on why we have this cultural state of why we can be so hyper-stimulated mm. and yet so bored at the same time. Um, I also want to go through different post-liberal strands. So we've mentioned, you know, looking more anarchist, looking more integralist mm. authors, looking at um, other post-liberal authors. Uh, some people have suggested to us they want hear us to hear our thoughts on James K. Smith, for example. Um, I want us to, at one stage, to go into a deep dive into rights discourse. Yeah. That's a good um, one. um indigenous reconciliation mm. was one where we're thinking about Um can the Mandalorian save Star Wars I think that's going to be actually kind of hot on well you know and then Marvel's bringing out all the good stuff because frankly like I'm just like dying here with my absence of you know are we even going to get to see Wonder Woman I mean is geez, this is the yeah, real stuff yeah. anyway is there anything that you were or did I just steal all the things that you were thinking about
1: um no, yeah, I think I'm really keen to do one on um, post-liberalism and Indigenous recon- reconciliation and recognition. Um, I think that would be fantastic. Um, yeah, that, that might do us. I, I'm really keen to... Uh, I was talking to a couple of listeners recently and they said that they really liked it when we do pop culture engagement and I really enjoy doing that. So we're going to pepper some of those in. Mainly for our own, too right. Our own amusement, really. Goodness, talking about narcissism. Goodness gracious!
0: <laughs> Look, WandaVision is coming mm. out. That looks fantastic. I'm watching Loki. Yeah. Looks great.
1: Anyway, we should leave yeah. it there. We've gone way, way, way over time. But um, th- thanks so much uh, for joining us. Uh, please uh, like us on Facebook. Uh, follow us on Twitter. Uh, share us with your friends and make appointment to um, come and talk to me uh, at theoria.com that's t-h-e-o-r-i-a.com.au and uh, we'll see you in a few weeks